I was like, man, it was so cool. I really enjoyed it. Everybody goes, fucking fuck hated that guy. That guy. <laughs> yeah. Fuck him. That's what re- reality TV was like. That you know, they do yeah, that. They give you have much. to have a thumbs down person. If you- <laughs> oh, you had open heart surgery. Oh, boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did drugs. Oh, so sad. <laughs> oh, oh man, I've never heard anybody do that before. <laughs> That's what. That's how absurd reality TV is. That's what you have. Yeah. If it was on a podcast, yes. you had to act right. like that. Right, right after brother. the guest came off, like, come on, be a podcast guest, and then you just rip them Like, we pieces. just made a, yeah. a big brother alliance with Tommy, and then we go to the confession room, and we're like, God, that guy fucking sucks. Am I right? What a dick. No, but Tommy was great, though, didn't you think? Oh, he I was. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. He had a lot of, like, there were so many different things we could have, like, easily spent an hour on each topic of his life. Like, we could have talked an hour on addiction and an hour on writing and Hollywood. Like, it was, he seems like a really interesting individual. I just, the, all the movies that he did, I mean, to write the screenplay for Cool Runnings. I mean, yeah. all, I mean, that's just, I mean, that is a real part of my history. That's a real movie where I was like, whoa, this is so good. And I love, I mean, that was a, a memorable or like a really memorable movie mm-hmm. movie for me like you know like i put that in there like for me as a kid like the goonies uh cool runnings uncle buck yeah, uh, i mean you know Candy several fan. of those all those all, you've seen all those movies haven't you mary beth um i've <laughs> seen a, a absolutely zero of those uh, most Not of those movies one? were made Not before i was born <laughs> So when somebody says uh, John Candy to you, what does that even does? What does that bring up? If somebody, I mean nothing for me. <laughs> Do you no. know who John Candy is? Not a clue. Oh, oh my <laughs> Not god! But Chris no Farley, way. you know who Chris Farley is one more yeah, generation. But still, like, you didn't ever experience him in any time when you were, you know. That's the only like tie that I had. I was like, well, he must be similar to Chris Farley because. I mean, well, he he wasn't as animated as Chris Farley. I think people put them together because they're both big guys in comedy. But he was, but I mean, he was like a a really funny, likable guy that everybody. You, it, I guess even like Cool Runnings, he kind of always felt like a guy's a little bit down on his luck, but you really liked him. You know what I mean? Like he had he had a a weird, yeah. sad, funny thing. Like even in a uh, uh, Home Alone. Right. You know, he's the polka king or whatever, yeah. and he just, you know, you never heard, he's talking to her, she's never yeah, heard any his of his polka songs, yeah. and it's just per. and you're just like, I love this guy. He's, he seems like so great. He, and planes, trains, and automobiles, same way. Yeah. A guy's down on his luck, you find out, oh, wait, he's, you know, he seems so jolly and happy, and he has a, a dark side to him. And, you know, same way, cool runnings. You know, he's, you know, a really big guy that used to be a bobsled guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's wild. But that means his real character is like, like, there's th- something in him that, that he can do that, like. You know, that's it. Got to be based right. out of his real personality, be be so convincing, which is what makes it kind of, I guess, sad or whatever. Mary Beth, what was like when you talk about a, a movie? Like, so those were like kid movies, you know, or family mm-hmm. movies or whatever. What was like your first big movie? You're like, oh man, that meant a lot to me, or it was something, you know. Um, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, I started. My mom's like obsessed with Wizard of Oz, so obviously that's not a kid movie. But no, we're just trying like to f- date your age. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I see. Okay. What Shrek, the- maybe. Shrek. Shrek. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw Shrek, too, but I guess I don't know how old I was. I had to be oh, in adult. my 20s, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I was, yeah, um, I was. 
I can't think of anything like earlier than that. I'll be honest. I'm not really good at like remembering most of my childhood, but <laughs> I think of like Shrek and just like either like Disney movies or, or yeah, Disney movies, like maybe like Cinderella, like all the classics like that. Right. Um, that's like as far back as I can remember, like the earliest movie I remember watching as a kid. But you probably grew up with like a DVD player, right? Like you didn't, like did you have a VHS? Was it already kind of moving on out? Um, no, I we had a VHS for like a hot minute. It wasn't probably till like late middle school that uh, okay. I feel like we got a DVD player. But I miss um, going to like Blockbuster or Pick a Flick and Greer yeah. and look, looking for a movie. And, and you know, they'd have the candy there. And you, please, Dad, can we please get this one you know something yeah. and it, every once in a while my dad would, or mom would maybe get us a piece of candy but you could walk through the aisles and look at movies and you can only pick two or three and, and you you know you had to return them within three days and all, i mean all yeah. that is just told my kids will never understand that they're not going to understand a dvd that'll that'll be like the most ancient technology to them yeah. it's, it sounds absurd that you'd have to have this disc and put it in and what are they talking i mean my kids understand netflix and all the you know disney plus and all that immediately they get it and it would be stupid if they had to really go through they don't even yeah. like using any of our old game systems or anything like I that did, we had to put a disc in i do remember um there was this animated movie that i would rent at i don't even know if it was a blockbuster it might have been like a local place but it was called thumbelina i couldn't tell you anything about it i tried watching it though like a couple years ago as an adult yeah. The most god awful movie I've ever seen in my life. It makes no sense. I don't even know how children follow it, but it was like my, I rented it over and over again whenever I was a kid. I don't, I just, I can't watch my childhood movies anymore because they just disappoint me. <laughs> I tried to watch uh, Major Pain. Did you, you know, you probably don't know that movie either. I doubt it. No. I, I tried to watch Major Pain. I was like, That's oh, terrible. kids, you're going to love Major Pain. This is so awesome. You're going to love it. It's such a funny family movie. This is going to be great. We sat down to watch it. The opening scene is, uh, what, what's the... Uh, Damon Wayans. Damon Wayans. I was thinking Marlon Wayans. Damon Wayans. He he talks like this, and he's a you know he's a major, and and, he, and the guys. The, one of the opening <laughs> scenes good. is a guy's on the battlefield with his arm blown open because they're in a war, and Major Fan goes, <laughs> "You want me to help you make that feel better?" He says, "Give me your hand," and the guy holds up his hand. He goes, "This is gonna." tangle a little bit and he breaks the guy's finger and you see his finger break in half and my son goes oh no oh no 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 like he can't and then like like and i was like it's okay it's just fake it's just fake seven minutes later major Payne's at the school that he's gonna be the rotc leader of and there's a little kid and he goes the little kid's scared where he goes you want me to make you feel bad and he takes the little kid's hand and i goes no no and i was like oh my god like i grew up no. that's nothing that was nothing to me that was a family movie we had to turn off major pain i turned it off and then like 30 minutes later ike's like you know how sometimes something will get stuck in your head and you can't get no rid of way. it that's no exactly way. what i it, it, like that that's in my head that's terrible i know i just thought i was watching I a family remember movie. what got in my head it was so bad when you would accidentally see the wrong thing and we had the exact same thing happen with the movie um i don't know if you've heard of the movie the faculty <laughs> oh yes <laughs> i know that movie we yes, were watching I do the know faculty because with it, your kids you watch that 
Yeah, we were watching the faculty, and one of the first uh. things that happens is one of those people that take over the uh, teachers' bodies that's an alien. Right. But you don't yeah, know yeah. they're aliens yet. Right. They're just humans at school, just right. teachers and authorities. <laughs> and one of them, they, they get that evil look, and the music comes in, and the first violence is like they take a, a pencil, a very sharp pencil, and just jams it right through the person's hand on the uh, other side, and he's holding yes. And it's the Terminator guy, and it looks so real. And, it's, yep. and it's like, like uh, Georgia didn't care, but Jerry was just like, but she was, uh, you know, it, but I mean, she, you know, she got over it, but it wasn't actually that bad. But she, she was like, I do not. I was like, what? Very wrong. Yeah, exactly. But that's what's funny. Even going back to Tommy Swerdlow on the podcast today, he he was in those '80s movies, '80s and '90s movies like uh, Child's Play. Uh, yeah. He was yeah. in. Uh, um, I mean, we like saw horrific balls. violence at young ages, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Those stuff, and, like and it, the Pet Cemetery when that kid slashed under uh, that guy's Achilles tendon. Like, I, I was a child when I saw that, and it got stuck in my head. It's I in there know. now. It just came out right now. I just, I I'm feeling that right. right now, today, as a 42 year old, because of I saw it. I mean, but PG PG 13 PG 13 would be R now. Whatever but, it was in the 80s. It's but why R. do I love it then? Well, because you're a kid, and you just think it, you're not supposed to watch it, and it's something crazy. You, I mean, when you're when you're eight or nine years old, you don't think you're going to see a person's finger be broken, <laughs> and and the adults start laughing. <laughs> you don't th- you don't think you're going to see that, and when you do, you're like, oh my gosh, this is pretty amazing. But uh, yeah, but it is. I mean, it is crazy talking to Tommy. This this interview. I mean, he was strung out the whole time and functional. Like he he talks about getting in his screenplays and all that stuff. I was like, man, this like. I, I relate it to because we talk a little bit about you know his addiction and you know he asks us if we're addicted or whatever. But I mean, there's been tons of times. I mean, like Dave, our drummer, he, you know, he'll say uh, before he goes out on stage, if he has a couple of beers, he definitely plays better in his mind. Like he thinks mm-hmm. it takes the edge off. It takes a little bit, you know. And mm-hmm. so I can understand that. I can understand a drug taking away your fear and anxiety just enough to where you can maintain work ethic but also not get in yeah. your head with your anxieties and fears it makes sense yeah, yeah i mean there's a, the archetype of a, the coked up person at least not usually the opiate or whatever but at least right. like high right. performance on a lot even of in like college and stuff you know like obviously students taking like uppers and things like that to study better it's kind of like it would make sense that that's what you take to write better and just perform better in general. But yeah, the Adderall things is interesting in that way because, you know, it's part of the story they say of the United States is us being caffeinated, like how much we've been caffeinated really changed our trajectory. And it's part of our culture and the productivity Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the growth and all that. And, you know, People don't talk about Adderall a lot, but it's more significant than, than caffeine in a similar way, right? Like, who's using it, how much, and what's is it good or bad, in what ways? Like, I, you know, I've avoided it my whole life because I'm, you know, it's, you know, I've avoided it, but I always wonder what it would do. And then, is it good? If it's good, like I don't. Those are, you know. I, I, I mean, this this interview opened up something for me that I have thought loosely about for a while, but is it? Is addiction unavoidable in the sense of like? Because he when he talks about John Candy, he goes, "Well, John Candy was addicted to food, or mm-hmm. or, or, or you know what I mean? Like like uh, and Chris Farley had drug addictions and and probably food addictions. And I mean, what like what addiction is there? Something like some people are addicted to social media, or like I'm maybe I'm addicted to my phone, or you know what I mean? Like is there? It's just is, a type it, of behavior. It's some kind of. Uh, drug that gives you something it, it pops into well, your the drugs it, in your head right. you know it's a dopamine or a serotonin and right whatever. i mean it's your own drugs ultimately 
right? Yeah, it's all about the chemicals in your head and what whatever it is that makes those receptors respond or go off or whatever is something that I guess could is it always addictive? It's not. It's not always to avoid something. Is is a drug always to help you uh, not feel completely present? Like you can kind of avoid. Is I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out. Like well, that's, that's getting closer to a definition of an addiction or a way to look at addiction would be like it's a way to avoid a certain thing, therefore leading to negative consequences. Therefore, the behavior classified as an addiction versus a behavior of that you want to behave in a certain way that you, that you could call addiction, except for it is what you want and the outcomes are positive. Similar behaviors. Yeah. Just what the alignment yeah. is. So if you're avoiding something by seeking sex or drugs or any other thing, the fact that you're avoiding is probably the problem and then going to lead to the consequences, therefore calling it addiction. Mm -hmm. It's weird, too, the levels of drugs, though. I heard a comedian talking about, like, you never, you know, any time if somebody was smoking a cigarette, you never heard somebody go, "Uh uh-oh, Dad's smoking a cigarette again. He's probably going to beat the hell out of us or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, you never hear anybody use the drug caffeine and really lose their cool and you know getting you know yep. drive recklessly or abuse their kids or whatever but i don't know it's weird that those there's certain drugs that do they do different things but each of them like coffee is so you can try to get yourself some energy to make it through the day because yeah. you can't do to it on do your something. own or something it's, it's not something. you know because if it's just you you won't you know you're not even gonna get out of bed or something or you're not gonna care as much or be as awake or present it's weird like you take something to uh, not be just you. Just but you all isn't of our enough. behaviors and uh, all of our behaviors and circumstances are us manipulating our mental state to be to regulate it the way we want it to be to do our current activity. Yeah, you know, Mary so. Beth, did you ever do much drugs? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, no. I mean, so there was a time in college that I was prescribed. Vivance, um, but I don't have ADHD or ADD, and so that was a long story of why that was even prescribed to me. But I mean, I didn't notice much of a difference, like it having any kind of effect on me. If we're talking about yeah. that kind of thing, but I mean, the only other thing that I've tried is, I mean, I've smoked weed, but it yeah. just makes me so sleepy that I just like it's. I can't do it for fun. I'm just literally ready to go to bed the minute I start to feel high. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> So I don't really, like, care much for how it makes me feel because, I mean, I guess I could, like, use it as a sleep aid if I really wanted to, but, yeah, I mean, I don't really have any desire to right now. Yeah. All right. Um, we got to talk about music. I got a bunch yeah, of we music. Do. But first thing to talk about music-wise is, uh, have you guys heard the Phineas album? Everybody's talking about it now. Oh, yeah, I have. Have mm-hmm. you heard? Have you listened to it, Mary Beth? I don't know if you did or not, but uh, we did an ad for it. Two. A couple of weeks ago, um, and then it came out or whatever, and then I just saw a bunch of people talking about it, and I have been listening to it. So I got a tooth and nail ad today, but actually I'm encountering Phineas. Um, I was listening to it with the kids. I had uh, Matt McDonald's kids and my kids in the car, and I turned on the Phineas uh, this oh, nice. two days ago <laughs> nice. and listened to it because we were all got to pick songs, go around. But when it was my turn. That's what I picked to show and play loud. Um, and uh, but I just thought it was great. You know, I just wanted to identify that. Um, Toby, do you have any ad copy there for this one? I, I sure do. All right, let, why don't we play the Phineas song? Here yeah, first. Yeah, just play it before I get started.
All right, so you are listening to Dream Thief, the newest single from Phineas, uh, Phineas's new record, The Fire Itself. If you haven't heard it, people are, seriously, that's what we were just talking about, loving this record, and several outlets are calling it one of the best metal albums of the year. That's pretty high uh, praise there. This is their first album since 2017's Dark Flag. It was produced by Daniel Gailey and uh, mixed by Carson Slovak and Grant McFarlane. The record is available everywhere now, including a brand new vinyl variant uh, since the others sold out during the pre-sale. That's crazy. They're doing really good. As always, go follow Phineas on Spotify so you don't miss any news or music from them. The fire itself is available everywhere. Now go dig into it and listen to it forever. Yeah, and what was uh, what I like about that, I, I'm going to do a, epi- a labeled episode with them um, soon oh, anyway, nice. but which will work out good. But I, what I, what's catching me about it is just the production style. Um, I'm starting to think of production styles as like movie environments is the kind of the overlay yeah. I'm using. And it's like they have to be these cohesive environments to sound good. And so we're doing this really raw style environment This I find to be really cohesive in itself. And then what they're doing is this, um, uh, you know, it's like super good sounding production and impressive music isn't like that can get boring but when it feels like it's in a place and it's like a co- cohesive whole landscape is this otherworldly thing you know what i mean then it all starts to work together kind of stuff but it right. sounds like a you know like metal sounds like it's made by machines and robots and aliens and in other realms you know like it gets the yeah. fantasy thing going i was thinking that fantasy is a whole different like it's there's that overlap of fantasy and metal so yeah, do you know? I don't, I'm not calling them fantasy metal or whatever, but that's what's really neat about it. Because what we're doing every day is I'm just in this rub some dirt on it. So it's like the so of the opposite yeah. style of like of how to produce something. So um, speaking of rub some dirt on it, it's coming out too. Yeah, nine September sixteenth, nine sixteen. That's a Thursday. It's the premiere of our new record. I mean, you're gonna see our. It's a visual album basically because you're gonna see us make the album in front of you, uh, and it's selling really well. So go ahead and get your ticket now. That's uh, and then you can go to momenthouse.com forward slash Emory to get that. Um, and then the other cool thing, you know, this is our fourth special now. I don't even want to call them specials. They're it's our fourth uh, visual. It's uh, our fourth something and our first something. Also. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But our other somethings, uh, we're doing we're, <laughs> on uh, so something. Monday. Uh, uh, I guess it was yesterday. It was yesterday the sixth, or uh, Monday was the sixth. Whatever. Uh, we did a mega drop, so you can join our Discord and you can receive the weeks in live. I'm only a man live, and I'm only a man studio update downloads instantly. Oh I mean, yeah, you can the get Discord. That. Yeah, because right. we we got the our Discord now is uh it's got a free. There's some channels that are Emeryland only, but the Discord is free. So you can go in there and get this three of these albums that are unreleased anywhere else and intermingle right. with some of the community. We talk about these episodes and a bunch of stuff in there. So we're having a, a wider public Discord, um, and then there's you know more stuff to discover there. But that's yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot more we could go into, but we're saying a lot. Just check out everything. You can go to, is it, I guess you would go to emorymusic.com or emoryland. And, um, but the main thing is just the album. The, you know, the album premieres uh, on momenthouse.com forward slash emory on September yeah. the 16th. Rub some dirt on it. Rub some dirt on it is the name of it. And um, Toby, I just saw the cut. The, f- the first cut edit and i'm trying to get oh, a mix really? ready to send you and it's uh i can say now it is very nice it really works it is i i'm a believer in the album 
for real, for real, finally now. So, you know, I just now have seen it like kind of all in right. a way that's going to feel, and it makes me. Feel I mean, that's so why I've I been mean, so nervous. Yeah, that's why it's going to be fun for the viewer because you are literally in the room when we are making the record. Like we we don't know the record that well when we do. I mean, well in the sense of we're playing it and we want to perform it and play it as best we can but that's like the first time we really done, i mean you know besides some practice that's like you're getting to see the you know really behind the scenes and it's fun and, and this this experience is going to be really fun for everybody and the record is good i mean it's, it's amazing the, the, i mean that's the way it's doing I, i'm doing the mixing and post-production and the edit and it all comes from the visual and i just am so astonished at how much it's not needed to be edited yeah. or fixed like it's like it really is so pure. Like I'm not moving, not editing drums or anything. Just not even doing, not even finding myself need, needing to make a, the adjustments no. that I thought we could make if we needed to. And it's just coming out beautifully. So I cannot wait to get a little farther along. We'll share a song, uh, another song in a few days. Yeah, we we released Concussion already. So, um, all right. Anything else? Oh, as always, go to Marriage Supply. Uh, I just want to say <laughs> once again, Marriage Supply is doing really good, and I'm so happy. Like. I'm kind of over marriage supply, and uh, Katie that works with us has been doing a lot, uh, a whole lot, but um, it's just really coming together. I'm, I mean, uh, we're just selling more and more, and it's a really great company to to be a part of, and I appreciate everybody's support. If you are looking uh, to spice up your marriage a little bit and get some uh, pretty cool products, some sex toys, and uh, try some different things, we're going to be getting more and more new products as well. So if you didn't see anything you like this time, go back and check it out. Um, but it's just been great. I, I, I feel so good that we have a real company that I think people really like. And there's no porn on the side. If you and you, know, you and your partner feel a little bit weird about that, you don't have to worry about it. Um, and there's a lot of great par- products, and it's really cool. So definitely go to marriagesupply.com, and uh, we'd love to ha- uh, have you support us. We sure would appreciate it. Uh, right. You want to bring on Tommy? Yeah. Anything else you want to say about Tommy before we join him, before we roll it, whatever? Let's hit it. Uh, nah, yeah, let's get to it. <laughs> Okay, well, we've got a pretty good connection, it looks like. You can see us and hear us fine. Let me hear you just a little bit and make sure we've got it. Um, this is me here in uh, my little uh, porch, sleeping porch office in Los Angeles. How's that sound? Sounds That's great. What, what part of L.A. are you in? <laughs> I'm in uh, sort of uh, West Adams or just right at the border. You know where that is? I don't know where it is. It's like, um, how would I describe it? It's well below Hollywood. It's where the 10 freeway sort of runs through the middle. It's sort of like mm-hmm. the, uh, yeah. it was the fancy uh, black neighborhood. I guess it was a fancy, fancy neighborhood. And then it became the fancy black neighborhood. The first place like Hattie McDaniel and Nat King Cole moved to these mansions Ooh. right by the 10 freeway. Then it kind of got funky and now it's on a rebound. So it's uh, mm-hmm. everybody's moving back in there. And you've been uh, L.A. like your whole life and career or? or my whole career, but whole definitely career. not my whole life. I'm from New York City, uh, Long Island, New York City. But I, I came here on my 21st birthday to be an actor. And uh, wow. <laughs> I was an actor for a while. And uh, I never I never left. Been 30- I could tell in the accent just a little. Yeah. <laughs> it still lingers a little bit. People could really identify it. Yeah. <laughs> That so what what year did you move to LA? Because I mean you just eighty three, eighty three. So you moved across the country just to hope hopefully to be an actor. Did you have a job yet or anything? No, no. I I came because his manager wanted to. You know, I came with some notion of a plan. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how it always starts, right? That, that's yeah. a really fascinating <laughs> thing that frames this conversation pretty well. And I was just telling Mary Beth about it. But uh, when Toby and I were 21, 22, 23, we moved from South Carolina to Seattle to start an entertainment career and be in a band. Right. And I've been doing that oh, ever was since. It the heyday of Seattle? It wasn't the heyday of Seattle. We were post the heyday. It was 2001 yeah. when we came. So it wasn't the grunge thing. It was at, in the lull after that, um, really. But we made that same kind of cross-country move to dedicate ourselves to a career and were successful enough to still be doing that same uh, band and entertainment and these kinds right. of things. And I always wonder... Um, I always thought we thought about should we have, should we move to LA when we started to do that, but we were yeah. too scared to do it. And also, a, a parallel path for us would have been possibly act. I, I wonder if we had done acting and writing instead of music. Um, it was something we were into. We were taking acting classes in college. Toby and I did a one act play together, and we just chose music and did Seattle. But there's this parallel thing in my mind of what would it have been like if we tried to do acting or drama or something like that and probably not as good but that's just always kind of been in our heads so what's that got a fender Rhodes. uh yes it, it's a it's one like it but yeah i've got some vintage keyboards and, and stuff okay, like what that. kind of keyboards you got you got a whirly yeah I th- well the the one back here is a, a moog synthesizer and this is a core that's, that's a real analog old yes. style old moog. No, that's a moog opus three from 1983 actually I don't have any profits. No, I don't. But you're a musician too, I guess. And in the sense, <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I I made a record with my ex-wife. She's a musician. I'm the kind of poet. I was the singer. We had we had a band, but she's uh, she's obsessed with old analog keyboards, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I I noticed. Uh, yeah. I definitely am. So we've got That's a lot awesome. of fertile stuff to talk about in this conversation for the time that we have. Um, and another one is, you know, in our line of work and the people we know and things we've dealt with is for sure addiction, sobriety, interface with substance, discipline, uh, you know, how to do these creative things, the bad Christian thing. Yeah. Yeah, we've just had all these different in and outs and interfaces with the edges of things and the boundaries and, and, and being not I, I mean we don't I mean maybe I don't I don't <laughs> claim it I don't claim it yet but <laughs> that hesitation there you're not you're not in recovery that's not the we're not in no, recovery no. but you could see that that could be true or it could go differently or might go differently in the future still um, we do management systems ourselves where we go dry for periods of time and right. have to work on that like we actively you could call us almost alcoholics or something it's you know that, why did you hook into me was it based on the addiction thing or was it just based on the book or just me or what well the whole territory is fascinating well when i got an email from your pr the number one thing that stood out to me was you were in howard the duck and that movie i know i know that sounds wild but uh because i mean it was uh, real quick just a very small short story the first time i saw howard the duck i was with my buddy greg and we didn't have any. We grew up in Greer, South Carolina. Didn't have anything to do. We rode over to the big city of Greenville. Nothing there either, really. In the you know, uh, early, late eighties, early nineties, and all that stuff. Rode over to, and we said, "Hey, uh, we've heard that sometimes uh, people will rent out a whole hotel room uh, floor and have a big party." I said, "Let's just go to a part. Let's go up to the hotel that we're not there and check in." We went up to first, you know, the first floor we went up to is like third floor. Nobody was there. 
Went up to the seventh floor. Nobody's ever said, let's just go to the top and get out of here. Went to the top. Every single door was open with fishing line, and they were remodeling it. So we went in, but they were all done. They just hadn't opened the floor yet. And uh, so we untied the, the fishing line, went in and stayed at a hotel for free that night, sat down on the bed, laid back, and this movie came on called Howard the Duck. I was like, this looks interesting. <laughs> That's how I watched <laughs> Howard the Duck. And I, and I promise you, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was I, I, I thought it was such a strange, bizarre, weird movie. And now, technically, I guess it's the first Marvel movie too, right? I mean, that, that was that uh, what was that one of the bigger movies that you thought you were going to be in early, early on, or was that what was before that? It was a, it was a weird. It was um, Robert Downey Jr. had the part I played, and then he got a bigger part. And I think that Rodney Dangerfield movie, Back to School. Oh yeah, part opened wow. up. And it was like a little part, you know, these two people, I think the husband and wife, Willard Chuck and Gloria Katz, who were the writer directors, I think they wrote one of the Raiders sequels, possibly. Mm. They did not know how to direct. And Lucas, well, the days I was shooting, Lucas had to show up on the set and actually direct the thing because it was such a mess. Wow. Uh-oh. It was just a disaster. But um, it's got some weird cult. Status. Like I've been strangely involved in a couple of things that have sort of like weird draws to people. One was Howard the Duck. Another is Child's Play, which people really get off on. Yeah, I mean, I guess. yeah. yeah. It's true. <laughs> I mean, that really became a, a thing, you know, and I had a pretty big part in that. And then um, and then, you know, and then I wrote Cool, cool Runnings and Little Giants. But cool Runnings is like a phenomenon with people. Yes. And Little Giants has a weird cachet. Yes. Do. <laughs> That's weird that you have such a cult following of those movies because you really yeah. do. Like those are all unique movies that really wow. mi- mean something to people. You know, yeah. they, they really yeah. spoke to something. Yeah, cool. They, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, and, and that's the one I. I mean, that's the one that makes me happy because I really. How it, it, we wrote a great script for Little Giants, a rewrite, but they ended up keeping only basically two big scenes that that we wrote me and my partner. But I wrote every almost every word of Cool Runnings. That's really yes. mine. Wow. I named it. I really. That's my flick, like my sensibilities yeah. in that. Let's slow down and talk about them a little bit. But I have powerful associations with, uh, for particularly cool runnings and very strong memories of Howard the Duck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like it for me, I was pretty, pretty young. I don't know how old I was, but when I saw it. It, it was just on the edge of dirtier than I was allowed to see or whatever. And it was just yeah. this duck, like a cartoon thing, but it was clearly for adults. So I was a kid, uh, you know, attracted to a thing that was for adults, but through a kid thing like this duck. So to me, it was yeah, like, like the opening scene is him like getting ready to masturbate to play duck magazine. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, exactly. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. wow, this is something here. You know, it's, yeah, it's I, don't, I don't think they would do that. Do that now. I, yeah, yeah, I don't think that movie could be made now. Because there's some brutal great. scenes. I will say, though, there are those movies where they, um, I can't remember what they're called, but they use like the puppets and they're super inappropriate. Yeah. Oh, Do you know right. what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. Well, those Team are, America. Team America. South yeah. Park. South Park. Yeah, I mean, those yeah guys, South Park. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's another thing, though. Those guys are, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're, right. They're, that's why they're geniuses. I mean, they're, yeah. <laughs> So let's talk. How about Cool Runnings? Where does this idea come from? Because to me, that movie is so powerful and quotable and everything. I'll tell. Uh, before we go, I, I have to tell. I always the funniest thing to me about Howard the Duck and Child's Play is in, in Howard the Duck, I get stabbed through the earring, pinned to the bar. I'm the rock and roll manager by the duck, and it was this guy. I, I did a 
some guy interviewed me about something completely nothing related to the book about a script I wrote of a Dr. Seuss thing. And he told me the guy's name is Ed Gale. I remember his name being Ed. He said his name is Ed Gale. And then three years later in Child's Play, he chokes me in the Chucky outfit, the same little guy. Oh, no the way. Same little person like stabs me and then chokes me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's two different costumes. <laughs> That's incredible. (laughs) Cool Runnings was just a rewrite, but it was a script called Blue Maga. It was just not, you know, it was just, it just had a lot of problems. And, and, you know, the guy I work for now, I work for this guy, my friend, he's an old friend. He was the executive producer. His name's Chris Melodondri. And he, um, he he runs this, it's his empire, the um, Minions and Despicable Me, Sin, Secret Life of Pets. Like he's got an animation empire and I work for him full time now and just write stuff for him. But back then he was the executive producer and this woman named Dawn Steele, who was the first woman ever to run a studio, just had this script that they were trying to get together that wasn't good. And we came in and rewrote it, but we wrote for like two years, must've thousands of pages, so many pages. And, uh, you know, I started off writing like ski bunnies and like weed smoking, like, like he was, the kid Senka was like having sex with the Swedish ski teams. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 and it was kind of like, I was doing it like that. And Chris was like, oh, that's great. Just move it a little this way. And by the end, it was like a G, you know, the movie that you get now. So it was just a rewrite. You know, it wasn't our idea, but I, but they, we got a lot of freedom. And this woman, Dawn Steele, was really supportive, defense, defending the young writers. Because it was our first gig, you know, and, and we wrote it with a lot of heart. And she was cool with that. So it just... We did not expect, we didn't like it when it came out. We thought like, you know, we wanted to do fancy, arty movies. We were like, what is this nonsense, you know? But people just love that movie, you know? I mean, I, I saw it the other day. I realized, I think one of the reasons people like it so much, or, or uh, one another thing is, it's a great black power movie that everyone can relate to because the enemy, it's not about the American race issue. It's the Jamaicans and the Germans. So everybody gets to kind of enjoy this right. black right. movie without the American wound being any part of it. Right. You know what I mean, which is really, and you guys can relate, you're from the South. So, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you, yeah. And you're free of all that. So, cause I watched it at some rooftop screening recently and I talked after. So I was interesting, but um, it never, it never ceases to amazing. And the Jamaicans, love it. I just, it's funny. Like there's nothing I can do. There's no, I would have to do something really radical to have anything overshadowed. <laughs> 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 that movie, people just come up to me. They're like, "That's the big deal." Well, that's yeah. what's fascinating to me about it is hearing you say that. Like, it could have been otherwise as far as how the characters, because the fact that it's G rate, it's not. I don't know if it's G rated, but like it, the fact that those that it's not dirtier, um, it ages well, it preserves. Because if you're just trying to do crude humor to put it in there at the time, that wouldn't have stood up near as well. And it is a heartwarming movie because it's a super underdog deal from the get go. Just the the concept is just already underdog, and then those characters are so good that you know the. The way that Sanka is a wild man, but he's not really bad, and you know, and it's just, and then the one guy's really just, uh, he's an archetype of that, just really put together, uh, you know, the way that they all are represent archetypes and then work together as underdogs, like right. it's all positive, and then nothing beats John Candy. I mean, that's just un- the that John Candy is everything. I have a really good uh, 
short story about him calling us into his hotel room one night, losing his mind on us, not in a bad way, in a kind of desperate, sad way where he starts just revealing all kinds of crazy stuff to us that I that they published this website for the book. But the interesting thing is, you know, I mean, I was completely strung out on dope when I wrote that movie, you know what I mean? And when I wrote all these movies, you know what I mean? And that's, so that's sort of a big context for the book. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That, you yeah. know, it's just that whole history of sort of being in this crazy juxtaposed world of like, you know, living this kind of crazy addict down in the hood, junkie lifestyle, and then writing these very, family-oriented commercial movies like, you know, Little a little Giants, I think I've seen for a minute, but um, all of them, you know, for, for, for 15 years. So it, 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 that's kind of the base of the juxtaposition that the book comes out of, you know. Mm-hmm. And this right. movie I made that's on Amazon that everyone can watch or that's, that's really, I think, pretty interesting and good called The Thousand Junkies. That's a movie that I directed and co-wrote that's a kind of a heroin comedy it's a it's a dark comedy but it's a drug-free drug movie there's no drugs and it. it's just three addicts driving around los angeles trying to get drugs and they can't they're like the little rascals almost would you <laughs> mind telling us about your addiction and how you got to whatever position you were in and then particularly i'm interested in that juxtaposition of being a hollywood whatever the hollywood culture was of the 80s and being in the drug scene or whatever that was and doing this you know, heartwarming stuff at the same time. It, you know, it's not, there's nothing that interesting about it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a weird drug. I mean, you could, I don't think you could do it, you know, smoking cocaine because it takes up everything, but you know, you can shoot you when you get a, an opiate habit, you're just kind of having to get right. You know what I mean? I mean, you can get yourself pretty, there were moments when I was like, I had a couple of moments where I was pretty out of it, you know, I mean, or I was, would not out in a meeting or something, but they were rare, you know what I mean? And I had a partner who was sort of the mouthpiece and sort of structured everything. And I just had to be the artist, the guy who kind of went to the blank mm-hmm. page. So, you know, I was just, I was just a good secret, you know? I just was able to function. I was a little, I was, I got very heavy, unlike most junkies. I probably didn't look very good, but I was able to turn in pages, you know? We were able to do our work and I was just able to function. So no one really knew I had a partner who wasn't strung out, who was able to sort of keep things structured. And we never missed things. We always handed in our pages. So it's not really that exciting a story. It's just a funny thing that, like, you know, you you grow up in America. Like for me, you know, you watch enough TV and you grow up on TV and you watch enough sitcoms and you and you and and for me, like I'm I'm a little I have a lot of learning disabilities. So. I have a simple style, even even though I come from a very fancy kind of Jewish intellectual left wing family. My mother was a big historian. My father was a a, a producer and a and a businessman. But um, I just could do it. I, you know, we just could do it. Like I we we had a method of sort of doing this heartfelt kind of authentic, accessible way, like a cool running style. You know, of of just you know. Because I was a poet. That's how I started all this stuff. You know, I was doing a lot of poetry before I got into the screenwriting. Between when I when I just was like acting dumb. I mean, I just got to the point where I was just like, this is just kind of mm-hmm. dumb. You know what I mean? <laughs> it is kind of dumb. But it's also fun, you know. But mm-hmm. And I was high. And so I became a poet. You know, I was doing all this poetry. And then I just kind of transitioned into the, into the screenwriting. And, you know, I just had a feel for it. Were, were you high when you acted? Like, were you, was it no, that? 
Oh, maybe like at the very, no, no, I wasn't, I, I wasn't, no, I, I wasn't. Uh, maybe the last, no. <laughs> I wasn't strung out. Maybe I'd gotten high a few times. But I was a kid, like I come from New York City and I was like, you know, a crazy popular, all my friends were heroin acts at like 18 and I didn't get, wow. like I had an ambition to come out here, but it caught up with me eventually. But it wasn't a big it wasn't a big deal until my partner passed away. He didn't pass away. He got brain cancer. And then when I was on my own and I, and I didn't have him as a kind of balancing as ballast, then I was in trouble. Mm, You know what I mean? And then I, I just couldn't quite, couldn't quite do it. And then I got it. I got really sick. And then I, you know, almost died. I got this, I had an open heart surgery. I got this thing called endocarditis. I mean, I couldn't get clean. I went to 20 rehabs. I just was stubborn. You know, I just, I had options. I just wouldn't do wow. it. You know? And then finally God was like, or the universe, whatever you believe in was like, all right, dude, you're off. You're off the stage. Like you're out, you're out <laughs> of the game here. Yeah. I'll put you in the hospital for 66 days. You, 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 uh, you're either going to die or you're going to, you know, figure it out. So I, I got, I, I had to figure it out. It took a long time. I was, you know, methadone yeah. and stuff. And um, when was the first time you realized you did have a problem? Though, like, because you said you are really high functioning, kind of. It seemed like the first time you realize you have a problem is you get sick, and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, that's what that is. Oh, yeah. yeah, I have a problem. I mean, it's yeah. like you know, and, and it's hanging over your head, and you know? it's like terrible. So. I think that's pretty common with like, at least in my experience, I'm not personally an addict, but I have spent a lot of time around addicts. I think that's like the common thread. It's like, there's no reason to stop until something really forces you to stop. So, I mean, if you can get by and you can live your everyday life and the consequences are fairly small, then like might as well keep going, you know? And then all of a sudden it seems like everything comes to a screeching halt really quick. <laughs> well, you know, and, and consequence is small. It's like, this was ridiculous. You know, it's like, you right. Know, sending us limousines to take us to Canada for movies. We're going to make, I mean, it wasn't like I was being, I was, in, you know, I was successful. It was beyond, right. there weren't consequences. I was like, Oh, look at me. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. it was, you know, great delusion. But it didn't affect the work that much because it's not, you know, it's not. It's, I mean, pot would affect your work more. You know, that would affect, I mean, heroin, it doesn't really it doesn't change who you are that much. You know what I mean? Your work habits mm-hmm. and stuff. But it doesn't, like, make you think differently, really. I, I mean, yeah. it's so, you know. There's a fascinating link between something about people that are uh what i'm hearing from it is that you had a lot of luck or great situations going for you or it probably could have been you could have had a different track you didn't have the family that you had and the opportunity that you had and that writing partner that you had and the ability to have 20 rehab chances like that you know like that is but yet there's something and this is what i find most interesting or disturbing or some combination of is there seems to be from the people i know in recovery um and the people we've known throughout the music career and people, there've been people, you know, in and out and lost and up and down and everything. Um, they, there seems to be some kind of the artists that are able to really, like you just said, I could just do it. A lot of times they have some other way that they're brain you mentioned learning disability. So it almost feels to me like there's a way of being or having a brain wired where you can access this associative creativity and and pull things from places or do stuff and then there's these ways where 
the managers and the agents and other people can help you or even enable you and you just keep your creative out there thing going, man. And you let the lead singer do his drugs and come and just pull it off. And like, and there's some way where you, you're balancing those two forces. And it's, it's like, there must be a lot of talented people that never get that support is the way I feel about it. Like how many people just addicts on the street are brilliant. And they don't, and they don't Mm -hmm. care. Like if you keep handing in, like the only time anyone ever said to like me or to somebody like an agent of mine, like is Tommy. Okay is when I handed in a bet one time, a really bad script, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, What's going on with it? You know, yeah. and then, and then at one point I lost an agent where I had two things where they, cause Michael wasn't there. I mean, it got, it got a little weird. And then, you know, I sort of told the story about it to try to raise money for the movie I made. And then I did a Reddit, then I did a vice article that did about it. You know what I mean? And you know, it's just interesting, you know, it's interesting to people. But what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people who've been, I mean, the entire jazz, I mean, Art Blakey was strung out his entire drum. I mean, he's jazz. I mean, there's certain things you can just mm-hmm. do and you right. figure out. And, and, and the thing that people don't understand about heroin addiction or opiate addiction is it structures your life. It's, a man, it's just sort of struck, very structured. Here, I need this. I have to get this. I have to get money for this. And you never not don't know what you need to do. You always know what you need to do. It's just, yeah. But right. some crazy, amazing performance of creativity might be the thing you just need to do to really keep it going at some point. Like to really pull it off here is what you need to keep this ride going at some point. It's funny, too, because you see people like going back to even like Cool Runnings. Uh, you know, John Candy died fairly recently after Cool oh, Runnings, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and so you and like your partner died of brain cancer. Like you're seeing all these other people who are talented and successful and they're dying for other things. So it probably you're like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. What else can you tell us about John Candy? Well, I mean, I've never met somebody that knew John Candy at all. And you said some, he said that stuff in the hotel room. I'm just kind of curious about him. He was very deeply insecure, deeply generous, very um, wanting to be liked, very talented, clearly, you know, just... You know, I caught him when he had been, you know, on, he was on the down curve of a huge stardom at certain points. So yeah. Feeling what it is to sort of lose it, you know what I mean? And and he, and he was going to us, you know, he said a bunch of things in this story I wrote. You know, he was like, going, I'm nobody, you know, I'm nothing in this town. But And he kept going to us, I need this to be really good. I need this to be really good. Like, this was going to bring him back, you know what I wow. mean? And like he needed it, and he was, he was great, you know what I mean. But it didn't matter. He was dead before I think, probably before he came out. Maybe I mean I don't know. He did another movie in Wagons West or something, and yeah. then just died. Does that remind you of Chris Farley? Like, this is it similar? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think Chris Farley was sort of right in the middle of the the ascent, almost. You know what I mean? He hadn't even come to the down curve yet. Right. And I don't think Candy was necessary. I mean, you, you, what you don't realize about acting. And even I didn't realize it. Like, I came out here, I was 21 years old. Like, by the time I'm 24, I've gotten leads and, like, movies, and they've fallen apart, or they, they get canceled, whatever. And um, I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's over. It's not whatever. You don't get how long life is. You don't get the ebbs and flows that it takes one part to come back. I mean, John Candy would have been working forever, and there would have been some part, or he would have ended up in some amazing television when TV came in or you know it would have but it seems like everything's over and if you've got to 
you're 400 pounds, you got a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very sad. So uh, I wanted to talk too. So you, you, I mean, obviously you said your heart condition is what is that? That was what finally put the nail in the coffin to your heroin use. This thing, this heart valve infection. They had to do open heart surgery. So yeah, that and then I got a bleeding ulcer. It's it's in the book. Are we going to talk about the book? That's yeah, right, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we're at. <laughs> I didn't realize. I didn't realize. I have I, every time I do this now. You know, I think of myself. I'm always thinking like I went to high school with a couple of people who were big, huge, hugely successful, and I know endless people. You know, and I was from Africa. So I think to myself, "Oh, my life has been a mess." You know what I mean? What a wreck! What a de- I'm like John King. <laughs> I'm not even that what a disaster. But then I'm like, "Oh, people want to talk about all this stuff. They find it all interesting. People are going to me. You've had such an interesting life." I'm like, "Really? It feels like I really fucked everything up." But okay. <laughs> well, you say so, man. Great. Well, that's what we want to get into, though, because I'm fascinated by just uh, writing, especially because, I mean, you were strung out and you were able to turn in your pages, like you said. And I mean, everybody, so many people I've met, not everybody, but so many people I've met, like, I just want to write a book or I want to write, I'd love to write a screenplay or do something like this. And they just can't do it. Like it, it to sit down and write something down on a piece of paper is so difficult. And now you've written your book, Straight Dope, which is a, a, a full book. I, I don't think that's your first book, is it? You've written a, another uh, this first is your book. first book okay um i mean that that idea of sitting down and doing that it, it seems like the most that's the least thing i would think about an addict being dedicated and able to put in the time i mean because it's hard yeah but there's been a lot of i mean i hear what you're saying you know it's true and then you're like you know i was just in mexico city you walk into a bookstore you know and you're just like jesus christ a lot of motherfuckers another language you know you're just going right every south american offer i don't think about and like it's amazing how many people do it and how many people want to do it screenplays are especially compelling to people because they watch movies so they have the illusion that it's not so hard to do the truth is it's both not so hard and incredibly hard. I, I think you could probably write one and get away with, like, if you have a story to tell, especially a personal story, you could do it. Um, sitting down and doing it a lot. Like, even right now, I'm, I'm doing a third draft of some movie I'm working on, and I'm just like, you know, it's a drag, you know, for a minute. And so yeah. it's, not, it's difficult. And that's why they're not a lot of great movies. TV shows, I think, are a little easier because... They don't have to sort of wrap up and be sort of symmetrically satisfying in an hour or two hours, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. So they're a little more like novels. Like writing a really great short story is sort of like a movie. They're, they're, they're tough. So, yeah. um, but, you know, it took me a while to write that book. Uh, uh, you, 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 you are identifying the thing that everybody who writes really says is like, it's about sitting in the chair, like, that's first and foremost. Like, if yeah. you have talent, that helps. But but you can't, it doesn't matter if you have talent, you won't sit in the fucking chair. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. You got yeah. to get pages. You know, you got to stack pages. And um, it ain't easy. You know, it took me a long time. I finally got a little writing discipline. You know, I have a friend who interviewed me on this other thing named David Ritz, who um, is like an incredible, prolific, not really a ghostwriter because his name is on the books, but if you guys are music fans, 
He wrote Ray Charles's autobiography with them. He wrote Marvin Gaye's autobiography. He wrote the oh, lyrics wow. of Sexual Healing. He wrote Aretha's book. He wrote Smokey's book. He wrote Rick James's book. He wrote Edda James's book. He wrote uh, Joe wow. Perry's book. He wrote Willie's book. He he's written fifty books. He just sits in that fucking chair, you know what I mean? And just he won't stop, man. I mean, he just he just wow. get out of that chair, you know. And so, you know, he's got a lot of success and he's got a lot of discipline facts pages. There's lots of people like that. Philip Roth at the end was like, I wouldn't stop. So I am a little slower, but I will like I just finished my second book. Like, I'll do it now, you know. I'll I, and I'll I'll finish these movies. I mean, I can you know, I'm not I'm not a super disciplinarian. I'm not obsessed, but I, I do do my three, four hours a day. And the consistency, like for people who want to write, you know, you'd be shocked at what, you know, 500, 300, 400 words every day is a lot better than, you know, 2,500 and then you don't work for two weeks. You know? Yeah, so it right. must be a yeah. compound interest yeah. effect where you go back over time and just you can t clearly tell how much you've improved and then that gives you the motivation to continue on after you've been doing it a year. Consistency but. racket, like that, that's for sure. Like the, the willingness to um, write an amount of words to, to not worry about being, what is, I think Somerset Mom said, they said, do you write? He said, do you only write, do you, you need inspiration to write? He said, I only write when I'm inspired. Luckily, it comes every day at nine in the morning. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, let's zero in a little on this book. Um, I'm curious when you go to, to do a project like this one, this one seems to really have a unique, you know, style and format. And I'm curious, does that come out just from drafting or do you start by outlining and tell us about the what the style of this book is? I didn't do any of that. I, my kid had to read The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler for high school. He wouldn't read it. His, he's got two, you know, he's got my, my ex-wife, who I'm still incredibly close to, and her best friend, who was kind of like his second mother, said, I'll read it for you. She read Chandler, The Big Sleep. She didn't like it. I said, really? I hear it's great. I hear Chandler's amazing. Let me see it. So I read five pages of it, and I'm like, oh, I can do this. I can write in this style. I think I can do it. And I'd never written a novel, but I leaned on him in that genre and that sort of detective confidence, short sentences, quips between dialogue. And it took me, I think it took me three years or maybe almost four to finish the book. But I didn't outline anything because I've been writing movies a long time. It was a lot of plot. It was difficult. I mean, it's a genre thing which made it kind of easy and hard at the same time. But it was just, I just took things I knew about addiction, screenwriting, Hollywood, recovery, Los Angeles. And I just said, I'm going to write a memoir, but I'm going to weaponize it as a detective book, basically. You know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. I came up with one big fictional story, and I just uh, I just went for it. The new book I wrote has, is not genre. It's just a, it's kind of an unidealized sort of dirty rom romance novel. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this one was very much, I was keeping Raymond, specifically Raymond Chandler, because he, not not all of these guys, you know what I mean? Not all these noir writers, but him specifically was sort of my role model for mood, and I leaned on his rhythm and mood to get me through it. Were you thinking, what's the difference in like character development from like a screenplay to writing a novel? Because it's interesting to me, I always wonder, when you write a screenplay, do you know that this one character's line's gonna land like it does like in cool runnings there's like a, a line that you know uh oh when they when the crowd sees this it's gonna be amazing and they're gonna laugh out loud or this is gonna tug at their heartstrings but 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 the book it seems like it'd be different because it's longer more developed slower 
you know, there's, um, I drive people like, you know, I can drive myself and people crazy. I don't outline. I've been doing this a long time. I trust my story instincts. I think my, my natural instincts are better than outlining. It goes slow for that reason. Um, I'm not a good role model. I, I, I lean on my instincts probably more than is you would want or put it this way, you better have good instincts if you're going to lean on them, but they're still, they're still slow. You know, the first book, the book, I had to get through a lot of doubt. Like doubt is a real serious thing with writing. You know what I mean? And, and so I had to work through it and keep going over it. The second one, I was had a lot more confidence, but I just, I just trust my ear and my, I, I just feel like I believe in something called like story energy. Like I, I sort of feel like I understand what it is to get into a story, the inner life of it. And when I'm writing about a character based on myself and my experience, specifically how to sort of get my inner life and the, and the why it matters to me on the page. And then the instincts and all the notes I've taken, all the screenwriting I've done takes over. And I do have a feeling for movie moments I write, I mean, I, you guys, I don't think you've read the book, but it moves very quickly. I, I mean, I write in a screenplay style. I just, I just know how, I just, I sort of know how I go at this point, like what it is I do, which is a very valuable thing to understand, but it's still difficult and it still takes a lot of work, but um, I don't outline is the big, yeah, you know. I think, and I don't think, I understand character development. I believe, I trust I trust that I'm asking those questions and that it's working subconsciously. And in that book, it did. And I think in this next one, it does. But, you know, you can go about it a hundred different ways. Right. Yeah. I think one thing I'm not, um, well, I'm a copywriter professionally, um, but I've always been into creative writing and wanted to. But I think it's funny that you've addressed all of the the hurdles I feel like have that have kept me from pursuing it more, which is the discipline of it. Um, the instincts. And then you mentioned the doubt. Um, I think yeah. that like with, I mean, that could apply to anything, but that like stops us before we even start on things that we, we, we might know that we can do it. So, you know, you, you said I can do that. I can, I can write this, but then when it comes time to sit down and do it, you're like, well, that's when the doubt creeps in and that's the hardest part to get past. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, yeah. but it's great that you talk about getting past it. And obviously now you have all these fantastic works to mine always is that. whenever I sit down to write something, it's the, the doubt ends up being, why am I going to spend time doing this? Cause it's going to suck anyway. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like how do you get past the suck? Cause it has to suck some Mary, Mary Beth. That's your name, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're a professional writer. You get paid to write words. I don't care what kind they are. Uh, the person I was mentioning, David started as a ad guy and copywriter. I'm having an ad agency. So you at least have that. You understand that you are, you know what it is to get paid for writing. That 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 that's good. I mean, you don't have to get paid to be a pro. You can do it just by doing it every day. It helps to get paid. But you know what I'm saying. So you're not you're not completely. You have a relationship to words as a way of really being in the world. So that helps too. You know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so if you're giving in to oh I can't spread out, you, you know. You, it's that's the challenge, but it's you're not coming from completely, 
you know, like somebody who sits down and just sort of goes, what the fuck am I doing? And it's amazing how many, <laughs> how many novelists are converted ad advertising people. It's amazing. That's, yeah. Really? That's a real path, man. Because that's, that's sort of people who, who wanted to be writers and didn't have the courage and then finally just go, oh, fuck it. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, I would really like to write, but creatively, I don't necessarily see a quick way to get paid. So I might as well pivot to this. All and right. then, of course, after you've done that a while, it can, depending on your industry, can definitely be a little soul sucking. Then after a while, you're like, I've got to write something that I give a shit about or else I'll go crazy. Screenwriting is the same way. Screenwriting is, a, I mean, how many, I mean, we could probably literally, there might be. There can't be more than two hundred novelists who make a living. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. A living writing books. They all teach. There's not a great writer out there who's not an academic. I mean, there's a few, <laughs> but I mean, screenwriting <laughs> you can actually get paid. So that's right. another thing about why you do it and stuff. So you know, there's 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 that. But 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 it's taken me. I mean, I, I just turned fifty nine, and uh, and it's taken me. Like I can, I, I I could do it. I wrote a book on Hamburger Hill. I acted in that war movie, Hamburger Hill. I wrote a novel during that movie, and I didn't see it through, based on the doubt, sort of this and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, but I can write prose now. You know, I just finished another book. Like I know I can do it. Like that's right. awesome. What I can do, it's the most natural thing I can do, and it took me. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah. i mean i'm already like if as i'm like typing something out i'm already like self-editing and you know i'll have a page and then by the end of the day i have nothing left i just erase it all and so it's like it's at least nice to know that maybe at some point even if it takes until i'm 60 i can at least let myself finish something for once well, <laughs> i think david bilch the guy who did you know the famous writer who did NYPD Blue and Hill Street Blues and Deadwood, who's like a legend in L.A. for all kinds of reasons and a kind of brilliant lectures and stuff. He said he got so obsessed writing on a typewriter that he had to start dictating on his back and he got these, he would lie on his back in a trailer and he'd get his assistants, usually women, (laughs) women, (laughs) not that it was anything appropriate, but they would type down what he would say because he because he, he got into such OCD wow. that he said he couldn't get past the third sentence. He just keep mm-hmm. rewriting like he couldn't. Oh man! Up, you know what I mean? Wow. And How then, did you did you? But you thought you were? Did you think I'll go to L.A. and eventually write? Or because you, you, you did a lot of acting? I mean, you I really did. Writer. I was always a poet. Like that's really what I do. Like all of this stuff I do is based in like. Poetry, you know what yeah. I mean? That's how I do it. And the book is really a mix of poetry and screenwriting. Um, but I can make it seem like prose. Um, I always knew that, you know. I, I I was the pot dealer in my high school in New York City, and, and I didn't go to school. They graduated to get rid of me, and I still was the valedictorian and wrote a, read a poem at the high school graduation. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to high school with a very famous... Um, writer who's won an Oscar named Kenny, Kenneth Lonergan who did Manchester by the Sea and wow. play and wow. so 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 uh, you know we're all from the Upper West Side and shit so I always could write I was always a natural and they came to me when there were events be like write a poem for this Tommy so I was always a writer and I always rewrote a lot of my parts and stuff and wrote my dialogue and but I just I resisted it first of all. I didn't want to go to college. I didn't go to college. Like I couldn't 
sit still. And I was a bit of a juvenile delinquent, you know what I mean? I was just, I was sent away to a boarding school when I was 12. I mean, I was a troublemaker. So I didn't envision myself as a novelist. Like I was just reading a, you know, an interview with Wes Anderson this morning. I just woke up and I was in the New Yorker uh, website thing and I checked it out. And, um, you know, he's talking about like reading the New Yorker in 11th grade and he wants to be a novelist and getting all these bound New Yorkers. And he, you know, you can just see people sort of envision themselves ways. I never had a clear envisioning of myself as like, oh, I'm going to be a screenwriter or I'm going to be a novelist. My friend who I mentioned when I went to high school with, at 15 knew he was going to be a playwright. At 15, he was like, I'm a playwright. I've just written a play. I'm going to be a playwright. Or I went to high school and you also with Matt Burke. It's like, I'm an actor. I was like, I'll be an actor. It seemed like I could do it and it didn't seem that hard. The writing seemed fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think yeah. too, I don't know, I don't know if you think this or not, but in some ways I've always envied anybody that got to grow up in around New York or around LA or a big big city because from Greer, South Carolina, that wasn't a possibility. Like it was not a possibility that we were gonna be in a decently successful band. Like our band, I mean, everybody was like, You are fools. Like what are you doing? Like but you're talking about like I didn't go to school with anybody that thought they were gonna be a professional musician or <laughs> artist or screenwriter or anything. Like nobody it, that wasn't an option. You were going to the best case scenario was work for your dad at his you know, plumbing company or something like that. Completely yeah. different. You have, I was talking about that the other day of all the things that we were lucky from like all of us were like you said to your parents like I'm going to be a novelist they were like of course you know what I mean it's like wow. there, was That's no, awesome. there was nothing in New York City we were the most lucky you know everyone we knew was fancy academic intellectual fancy ass New York City Jewish or not you know or something like lefties you know like and it was all <laughs> writing theater I mean those were art was holy and you and to be an artist was a holy thing and no one would tell you you shouldn't you know what I mean you could be that sounds like the dream right there that's beautiful because I'm hearing that they just believed in you automatically you know as part of you know as extension of themselves in a in a positive way but you, they didn't even have to. Your parents could tell you, no, you kind of believed it because of the environment. Yeah, you were right. just like, this is what's happening. Like, this, I'm in New York City, like, I do whatever the fuck I want. You know what I mean? And there were no, <laughs> it was 19, late 70s, there were no parents. Like, the, the, there were no parents in New York City. That like, justifies wow. the stereotype my dad had about y'all up in New York, too, by the way. <laughs> just to think they're better than Matt everybody. <laughs> That's what, in the South, that's the way people would uh, talk about it. it. It is true, but it's not that they think they're better. It's just they aren't, like, I know people, you know, who are, like, I get what you guys are saying. People, a combination of what you said, there's no there's no culture going on. No one's doing anything. If you're lucky to work with your parents, and if you said to your parents, they say to you, how dare you? What do you, who the fuck do you think you are? What, what kind of ridiculous, make a living. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it would take a very special parent because there's no evidence of anyone being able to do that. That's all right. we had was evidence of people doing amazing things. It's all about that environment. That's amazing. And then the L.A. environment, totally different than New York. But let's shift back to talking about the book, because in the book, you you like part of it is like, uh, let's see, what's the words you use? Weaponized, autobiographical yeah, yeah. thing yeah, well, there. So so what so L.A., 
again, from us, is the most foreign environment imaginable. We've been a bunch of times now. I'm pretty familiar with it. But it's such a foreign thing, yet all the culture we get exported is from it. So everybody in the country has this crazy interest in L.A., but yet it's all mysterious. So the film noir and all that kind of stuff. And you've had that experience in there. So what were you trying to... You know, what is the real L.A. experience and how, how did you write that into the book here? It, what are you trying to show the world about L.A.? Is that what it's really like or not what it's really like? I have a specific, like the movie does it too. The movie is a very specific vision of L.A. that you never see because it's, it's neither, it's not really the hood like in Boys in the Hood and it surely isn't Hollywood fancy, you know, rich people, Beverly Hills shit. It's this kind of what I call the Guadalajara of Seoul, Korea, which is kind of like, you know, which is where I live, which is this incredible Central American Korean mix of cultures. And um, the Koreans are incredibly strong where I live in LA. I mean, they're just, Koreatown is massive. It's the most growing place. They're powerful presence in this town. And so are the Central Americans, you know. So it's a very interesting cultural place, LA. In the book, I was just writing about people I knew. You know, I knew Hollywood. I'd been there. I knew where I copped drugs. I just know this town. I've been driving around it for 37 years. You know what I mean? And it's, like I say, I love it. Like, only somebody who's lived here almost 40 years but isn't from here can. You know what I mean? Because it's still mm-hmm. fascinating to me. And, and it's a very 20th century place, meaning, you know, New York has some 19th century history. L.A. really is an invention. It's like, in the book I write, in 1890, it was a town, there were 50,000 people in Los Angeles in 1890, that's all. And then they discovered these massive oil fields. Oil was the first big boom here, not not show business. And then, you know, in the 1920s, the 10s and 20s, the movie business started. But, um, and the place became big. But very unusual. When I first came here, it was very Americana. It was very burgers and pies. It's fascinating to me. You know, I only the only thing I knew about LA was from a Frank Zapp album called Just Another Band from LA, where he <laughs> sort of talks all about Los Angeles and all these stores and all these places. And so I kind of got hip to that. But I kind of fell in love with it, just driving it, driving around, and it's kind of weird. You know, I don't like the West Side, but I kind of fell I don't know what, you know, I fell in love with that Chandler kind of noir, weird, ethnic. I mean, it's a intense ethnic. I mean, I know New York has queens and condensed, but this place is just, it's funky, man. You know, L.A. is funky, and it's funky to drive everywhere. It's like it gives you, I have a nice passage in the book where I talk about this run at this one street called Wilton where I know all the craftsmen homes, and I describe them all, and I go, in L.A., the nationalities are in L.A. aren't Armenian, and uh, Korean and um, you know and, and Mexican, they're 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 craftsmen and Spanish colonials. The architecture is the people. The houses are the people in L.A. because you drive everywhere and no one's on the street, so your relationship becomes with these buildings, Housing, these yeah. houses, not with the people. You know what I mean? Where in New York, you just never don't see people. You know what I mean? It's just people, it's true. people, people. Yeah. So so L.A. is interesting, interesting that way in the kind of loneliness and in the car travel and you know I, I mean i came here you know and also you know i had a contentious relationship with my with my mom and i had to get away from new york so this place was a little bit like a place to reinvent not myself but to get away from all that and i just 
I just learned to love it. But when I got strung out, I got, I felt like I would get into, I was, I was getting into a secret society mm-hmm. and I was seeing sort of black Los Angeles and Latino Los Angeles in the hood down in South Central and South LA as a, not as a, like, you know, some people in Hollywood go down there to like do good things or some kind of philanthropic bullshit. I was down there in the, in the economy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, really being down there and I was getting a glimpse and, and I felt like I knew things that, that most white boys didn't. It sounds like you love, like the whole experience of it. You talk very positively about it. Um, but also it's like a dark thing. Like, I mean, it was dark because it was physically hurting me, but that part of it was positive because finding out, you know, I mean, knowing for a writer, really knowing about anything is positive. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I, you know, it's like I'm not, it's not bullshit. You know? What about the current state of L.A. and Hollywood, the industry? Is it is it a, is it a dark industry, as many of us would believe? And what is its future, I, I from know. your view? No, I, listen, I, it's not, you know, I think the best thing ever, you know, it's like in terms of how people perceive show business. I had a big agent when we were hot. For a minute, we had one of the big agents at CAA, and then he went on to run, I think, Robert Zemeckis' company, Jack Rafty, and he said to us, show business is a big joke, and now you're in on it. That's really the story. <laughs> big joke. And How's get, it a joke? It's a big joke, because it's like a gatekeeping weird thing, and if you can get in on the joke, you know. Listen, there's a few people who are really gifted and talented, you know what I mean, and 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 can, and can do stuff, and... And, you know, I mean, I've got my skills, whatever, but like, you know, how many people want to be in it and then and want to write movies, write movies in coffee shops? Like, you know, like I, I'm thinking, you know, it's a weird thing, you know, to walk into a Starbucks. It's not like if you're a carpenter, you walk into Starbucks and a lot of guys are hammering nails, practicing their, you know, trying to build tables in the middle of Starbucks to show you how good their carpentry skills are. You walk into a fucking Starbucks and I like six people are writing screenplays. Like everyone is writing a fucking screenplay. So, you know, everybody wants this weird thing or to be an actor. And it really is like all of a sudden you're in, you know, and, you know, you got to have talent, whatever, but it's like a funny thing. And then you're working, you know what I mean? And you were not part of it. And now you are part of it. And it really is like you're in on a joke. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that means it probably can't hold long term then. I mean, if you're seeing the independent creators rise slowly over time, it seems like that type, you know, if it really is gatekeeping versus meritocracy at some point, or I mean, the, the no, it's meritocracy. It's absolute meritocracy, but, but it's subjective meritocracy. So what does it mean? You know what I mean? Yes, it's meritocracy, but right now, Right now, like being a white male, it's really real. That's not a great time to be a white male TV writer. If you're a great, you know, Turkish female writer, you know what I mean? Or, you know, you're, you know, you're a Middle Eastern female, right? You know, it's a good time for you. You know what I mean? It used to be not a good time for you. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's that stuff, too. Not that I'm complaining. I mean, I think it's all correct and everything. But but um, but it, even though it's a meritocracy, it's a subjective one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's also... With commercial and monetary interests, you know what I mean? We yeah. wrote a movie about my father's, my family and my father's Parkinson's disease that got us to a famous agent who's long since passed away, but to CAA, where that script would get you nowhere near CAA now. You know, maybe it would have because we were young, but I don't think so. So things have changed incredibly, you know what I mean? And 
And artistry is not the most important thing. You know, the most important thing is sort of hustle, perseverance, and a sense of not the marketplace. I mean, you got to be able to tell your story. But all I'm trying to say is it's not like you can't just have a lot of talent and that guarantees anything. You know what I mean? But if you write a truly great screenplay, someone will notice. Like, it does it does help. But, but people do people do just persevere their way in Hollywood where they just keep writing, keep hustling, keep making whatever and keep putting it out there, get better and better. And then they get in or they get into a TV writing room and then they've got a gig. And then once you've been in one TV writing room, I never have been in one. That's not what I do. But then you, someone has said yes to you. So someone else looks at you and goes, well, this schmuck said yes to them. They, they must be okay. They said yes, I'll say yes to them. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, nobody, the worst thing you can do in Hollywood is take a big swing and miss. So if you go, oh, this unknown playwright, I'm going to hire him. You got to be really well established because if he stinks, you look like a fool. Whereas you go, oh, listen, he worked on these shows. I hired him. He was bad, but it was, you know, he's got a resume. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a weird hard to describe i i've had a very strange path with it kind of unique um but yes it is a meritocracy it is but it's a subjective one so that's you know what i mean an objective meritocracy is tennis yeah exactly (laughs) you know what i mean i just beat you six four there's not much to say (laughs) yeah how how do you know when you know reading screenplays it's just like if you send a music demo that you don't even listen to it and whenever like let's say people send us demos you maybe you put it in but you already know by looking at it that it's going to suck and then when you put it in it sucks and you know that in four seconds is that the same way with screenplays like how could you expect anybody to read a screenplay just to even get feedback in an environment like that? Like, how's it um, happen? As, as I say to people, I say, uh, like you're saying, make sure the first three pages are, are good. So, cause, cause the, the thing you want to feel is like you're in good hands. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. true. You know I mean? When you read, you can know quickly that somebody just isn't writing with authority and confidence. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm a big jazz fan, but I mean, you can hear, you will hear the start of uh, certain pop music. You just, you know, you'll just know. You'll just be like, "Oh, this is." There's a point of view yeah. here, or something. You know, the different point of view. Yeah, I think it hinges on that. That confidence in the protagonist, or songwriter, or writer's, yeah. or character's point of view. Yeah, yeah, confidence. So doing things with confidence and making whoever is witnessing it feel like they're in good hands, whether they're reading, listening, or watching. Yeah, that's a big part. Of it. I think uh, I was. I, I've been telling some people. People ask me. You know, I, I sing, write lyrics. They say, would you teach me or what could I do? And I say the same thing. I, I, I say the biggest thing to me is confidence and trusting your voice and who you are and your and the way that you are going to do it. Because, I, for example, I mean, like Tom Petty didn't get the solos in high school choir. His voice wasn't the one that the teacher loved the most or anything like, but he had a confidence about him and, and the way he could write music. And he trusted that. And I think that's a, that's the thing. I think a lot of times, same way with writing, you know, probably writing like you were talking about Mary Beth, like it's just the confidence to go, okay, I know who I am and I'm going to write this regardless of the outcome. I can trust myself. Cause I think oftentimes people probably, you know, especially with screen, you're thinking, Oh, if 
I get this done, I can sell it. Or I mean, writers probably or those people in Starbucks writing their screenplays. They're thinking, I got to write something good so I can get it get it to here. They're thinking about outcomes sometimes, which oftentimes mm-hmm. I think steals from the actual creative stuff Process, about it. Yeah, yeah right. that, like the same way with music. A lot of people go, I want to be in a touring band, but you know, I well, luckily Matt and I we started with, man, we want to write some kick-ass songs. And right. so that helped us. That's, that's what really helped. And then we believed in ourselves enough to move across the country and all that, even when everybody said no, no, no. But I, it really is, you're right, that there has to be that uh, yin and yang of doubt and confidence. Like, you got to have enough mm-hmm. doubt to go, oh, I'm scared, so I better do good. And enough confidence to go, I'm scared, but I'm going to keep going, I think. Um, so I, I do want to ask one more question about that. I mean, so you were – it just seems like we were talking about – like because it seems to me Hollywood – from like the eight, there was the Hollywood in the 80s, Hollywood in the 90s, Hollywood to the early 2000s, Hollywood now. It seems like it's very much changed. And it was, it seemed like it just got more and more packed. And then COVID, it seems like, you know, changed a lot of this stuff. But what, like, when you were at your, you know, you were in movies, you were an actor, you'd gotten out there, the 80s were wild. Was it like, I mean, like you were in uh, Real Genius with Val Kilmer. I just watched the Val documentary. And I, I just, I guess I forgot how, like, he was almost like good looking like a Brad Pitt and everything was there and then it just kind of went away. You're right. Like, it seems like there were... No, he, 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 worked, he worked like, he worked like, it's funny, my friend who I was just mentioning just did his book. Um, so we were talking and I went, saw him, I mean, you know, Val, Val was a very confident, you know, good looking and he just was a little nutty and he wanted to be iconoclastic about it, you know, and he was, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't have the same. He was a little kooky, you know what I yeah. mean? Like yeah, that. And his movies choices were a little kooky, so he wasn't Tom Cruise, you know. But yes, he was. He was. He was. He's got a dark. There's something dark about Val yeah. that made him, you know, similar to Mickey Rourke or something. You know, these yeah. guys who they they are a little self-destructive at the same time they're incredibly popular so that's just the way that is i mean i i i'm not a big partaker in in hollywood like i've just sort of been on the periphery of it and and working i mean when we first started i guess we were but i don't really like in the 80s were you partying like uh, going to these big la parties with the actors also it just didn't interest you for some reason i i wasn't but i knew all those guys yeah and, uh, yeah but but no, I, I wasn't. I was I had a theater company with, you know, my friend Bill Pullman and Gina Gershon was in it. Wow. Various people and I mean, you know, I, I and then I you got into writing. I mean I just was um I've always had my own mixed yeah. relationship to this place. I never really embraced it. It's full of shit. It's like a ridiculous place, you know what I mean? Right. So it's not you know, it's not and I was Unfortunately, you know, I was strung out, so I couldn't, you know, you can do a lot of things. You can write, you can play music. You know, maybe on speed and pills, you can direct movies and produce. I mean, being in a position of authority, like when I made this little movie that I made for no money, this movie, A Thousand Junkies, I mean, I was in charge of everything. You know, it's one thing when people... I always think of being hired to write a screenplay as like your parents are going, okay, now be a very, we're going to give you, we're going to give you a big allowance. Be a very creative child for us. Right. Kid <laughs> in the parent-kid relationship. The studio's the parent. You're the creative, the, the talented kid. And they're going to give you a money if you do good. You know what I mean? But it's right. still, you're not. 
when I did that movie, I was a fucking parent. You know what I mean? I was like, I raised the money. I had to be in charge. And so to really, you know, kick ass in Hollywood, you have to be the parent sometimes too. You know what I mean? And that mm-hmm. wasn't conducive to being, to being high. Directing a movie is a motherfucker. It seems like it. It seems like too crazy because to produce a record is very hard and there's a lot of moving parts and it's like guitar, bass, and drums. I've been part of a produced record. Yeah. Like nothing. And I mean, that is nothing compared to making It's not even a whole soundtrack. I mean, it's simpler than the soundtrack. And I find it incredibly hard to be the parent of a whole musical production. It's fully engaging just to do that. Not to mention the graphics department, the thing, the titles, the politics, everything. On our movie, we had a great, I had a great musician who did the music and we got incredible players to play, to, to, to cover you know, the needle drop I wanted where I could only afford a few songs. So, you know, I had my friend whose name is Benji Lyson, who just a great guitar player right now. He's producing, I think I could say, he's producing the new Chrissy End album. It's an in you know, the girl from the Pretenders. Um, mm-hmm. And um, he's just a great musician. He's toured with all kinds of people. And um, he got, I forget her last name, Carlo, who plays drums for Jack White, a couple of other people to play the live musicians on this. And, you know, we had to get a studio and they wrote some music and played some tracks, whatever. To make the movie took three years. I mean, to make these movies like Chris Nolan makes, I mean, literally, it's like, good. it's like a war. It's like you might as well invade a country. <laughs> but that's a whole nother thing now. Like, that's what's the most, you know, and this is the last thing I even have that I wanted to touch on is movies in the 80s are Weekend at Bernie's, Howard the Duck. They right. were simpler than Avengers and Inception. Right. Well, these, there's a lot of, yeah. I mean, and listen. I don't even exactly. I mean, it's just the progression of like, you know, when Steven Spielberg made Jaws, it was a really good movie. But then, the, you know, the movies, these event movies, there are no movies. I mean, I work in animation. You know, that's a place you can write movies still. You know what I mean? I wrote The Grinch a couple of years ago, you know, yeah. when I was working. I just worked on Puss in Boots, too, and stuff. Like, there's no going back to the old days of screwball, eat lower. It's like a lower bar, but more creativity. And now it's all big franchise only is the only thing and super serious. And that's all that's left. Mm-hmm. All the R movies are on TV, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the end of movies in a way? Like, are we have we maxed out that art form just like jazz? It came and in, in, then went progressive or whatever, like jazz and the swing. No, I don't think we're, I don't think it's the end. I mean, I think TV, I mean, the communal viewing experience. I mean, there's a funny riff in the book about when the producer says to me, Movies are done. It's over. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a, here, I'll read it to you. <laughs> yeah, please do. Yeah. Please do. All right. You can find that there, but I've just had that feeling like, you know, when a lot, like a, in certain genres of music, it gets popular and then everybody does it until they've explored all the terrain and then you have right. to go post this or post that or move on right. to a new place. There's not infinite amount of movies to make in a certain 90 minute format. Yeah. There hasn't you been know? like a new genre of music in two decades. Really. <laughs> yeah. You know, so he says to me, I'm at the end. I've pitched this movie to Jeffrey Katzenberg. I just OD'd and wake up. I think I was lucky I didn't die. I come to and I've got a message and I think maybe some. I got some good news. And I call the producer who I pitched this thing to Katzenberg with. And he tells me they don't, they like the idea, but they don't want me as a writer. They just want the idea, which is his idea. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. And I say an awful silence fills the line. He's probably reading emails as the debris of my career floats down all around me. Glad I didn't come all the way to the office to hear that news. So sorry how this went, dude. He tries to strike a compassionate tone, but can't pull it off. 
the movie business is dead. We remember when it wasn't, so we want to make like it's not. But it's a completely untenable model. There's just no longer need for a communal viewing experience. I was reading this article where they were saying that over 80% of all media is being viewed on smartphones and that it's actually rewiring people's brains so that the laughter of others is now a symbol of intrusion and danger as opposed to safety wow. affirmation. Wow. They're still making the movies you guys make. They're doing superheroes and animation. True, but they don't buy pitches. Then why were we working on one for three months? Because that's what we do. <laughs> that's so great. That's great. You put that super well. Yeah, I really so think good. that sums it up because, you know, the phones are rewiring our brains. I think they're rewiring our ears. Uh, the way we hear music, I have made tremendous adjustments because of the way people listen. And I've noticed people's brains are trained to hear, like to re- their brains process like the sound differently because they're used to it in a certain way. And so yeah. it, like, you know, you interpret more bass inside your brain, but that's not there in the speaker and you make the rest in your head. So you get these experiences that are very personal and it's too super weird if somebody beside you is laughing or if you're even sharing it with anybody. So that seems like a real loss unless we can innovate. I mean, we'll innovate new layers of shared experience across that somehow. And I don't know if that's movies or interactive movies or who knows what. And COVID has changed it all, too. I went to the movie with Devin uh, last week or whatever. We went and saw a movie and uh, heard across the theater in a faraway seat, a lady goes at, a, at the trailer. <laughs> and, it, and I immediately was like, oh, whoa, I haven't heard that in a long time. It's really strange. The lady's <laughs> laughing. And then my second thought was, uh, God, I hope she didn't have COVID and laughing like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all these thoughts immediately, and I was like, wait a minute, but I'm here for the movie, and we all are, and this is big screen at the AMC theater, and it's going to be fun, and then also there's this this thing, you know, and then, I mean, eventually, I'm wondering too, like, virtual reality, the goggles, that that could bring back, the because I think the reason the uh, Marvel movies and the big action movies work so well is because it's a giant screen. You can't get that, you can get, you know, great acting on the small screen in your living room and, and enjoy it, but... Anyway, Tommy, this has been great, man. I promise you. We really appreciate your time. Uh, the book is called Straight Dope. Where can people find it and find out more about you? If they uh, it's Straight Dope. I think, you know, Amazon is the safest bet. You can get it yeah. there. So, But, yeah, Straight Dope on Amazon. Maybe your local bookstore, but, you know, that's always the best bet. It's on Starkhouse Press. Tommy, thank you for being such an open book with us um, and, and letting us poke around and all the things that are fascinating to us. We yeah, really appreciate it. It's helpful. Take care. Have a good one. He is a smart, talented person, and like he—he's not joking. He thinks Hollywood is a is a joke because he sees everything. You know what I mean? And yeah, so, I think, you're right. yeah. I think at first too, he was also like, "Why the hell did y'all ask me to be on the show?" Yeah, <laughs> right. Like he kind of asked that in a way. Like, yeah. why am I here? Like, why are y'all interested in me? Right. Because he has a publicist that you know, like came through a publicist. So it's just yeah. like he—he yeah. he spoke. He's he doesn't like these few weeks a year when he has to do publicity, but he got the book deal. But then they said to do publicity, so he says at least do these, but he thinks they're all stupid. But right. he doesn't but I try to he, pretend I think he had like, a good time you know, with us. Yeah, and he goes, yeah. oh, yeah. So that, like, to me, that's a really cool encounter that even though, I mean, I'm fine with him feeling that way. And then we, I still felt that we were interacting yeah. genuinely, which is, you know, oh, I yeah, think that's sure. beautiful. So because if it's yeah. a boring I felt that way before, one, yeah. you know. I feel bad sometimes. My attitude was bad when I didn't know, you know, we had to promote a record and I was like, oh, who am I talking to today? And I've already done several of these. And yeah. is it, does it even matter? 
know yeah. what I mean? It's not, it's not like the Today Show. This is what's yeah. this bad Christian podcast? I don't think I've ever heard of it before, but okay. And he's Apparently Jewish, so he's yeah. like, why am I <laughs> <Right>. here? <laughs> and sorry, uh, the maintenance guy was knocking. I hope you can't hear it in the recording. No, oh, so he knocked it, no, no. once. He knocked once, and I, I was just going to ignore him. I mean, if I don't answer, he'll come back later, right? He knocked four <laughs> separate times. <laughs> And I, finally, I was like, what the fuck? So I turned my mic off and texted y'all, and I went and answered the door. And then once I let him in, it's because he had to fix my, like, washer earlier. When I let him in, he saw, like, he saw me sit down and put my headphones back on and talk. And every two minutes, he'd pop his head out and say, hey, by the way, and, like, ask me something. He saw you with a mic and headphones. Yes. <laughs> And I'm like, and they were like questions he didn't need. He was just, hey, did, did my boss come by earlier, by the way? And I'm like, yes, he so did. So you knew here, huh? Oh my God. So don't, no consideration, like the information that he took in visually about the situation was not, did not compute in any way to no. alter his behavior in any way. And I mean, yeah. as he was leaving, he was like, oh, you know, like, sorry for the inconvenience. But he that didn't stop him from talking. That's the, I, w I mean, maybe he just thought I was just on a Zoom call and I could just mute you guys or something. Right. But, and I wasn't like actively recording something, but I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. You're obviously yeah, in a meeting of yeah. some sort, though. Yeah. I mean, and you can see him back there. He's sticking his head out like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> like, what you doing um, over there? Yeah. <laughs> what are you up to? Let me look at your hardware. Like, no. So, oh, boy, that's too None funny. of that picked up. I was just like, I can't. Like, I was just, I was going to ignore it. And he kept getting louder. And I'm like, what if yeah, I had fine. been doing anything else? I could right. be completely naked. You'd have no idea what I'm doing in here. And right. you just continue to knock. And you really want me to open the store. I don't know. Anyways, yeah. That's my rant. 